0: Good morning, everybody. Let's pray, shall we? So if we just pray in silence, really, today, if I ask you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you in the silence. Pray that my words are uh, poignant, helpful, and relevant. I'll pray for you with a pastor's heart that they're appropriate. Amen. He says, trusting that you were praying rather than just closing your eyes. So we start with a very simple reading that's been on my mind. Psalm uh, 145 and verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. At uh, a number of points in our ministry program, We put in a free subject so that we have space to talk from passages or about issues that don't necessarily follow from our preaching series. In this case, we're working through the book of Numbers in the mornings. But instead, that we we pick a theme uh, that is something on our heart or is something relevant or poignant at the time. Today is one of those days, and I want to speak around issues, around the theme of homosexuality. If you're visiting us, uh, please know that this is not the sort of church that majors on a theme like this at all. I can't remember the last time that we spoke about it. In fact, generally, and quite deliberately, we tend to say nothing about it. Hence, part of the reason for the title, the, the new taboo. And there are lots of good reasons uh, why we don't talk about homosexuality a lot. Mostly, it's because we simply want to emphasise a genuine, welcome, whoever and whatever. That kind of approach is our major theme. Please know that. Uh, secondly, um, I don't believe homosexual practice is a bigger issue to God than a whole range of other lifestyles and other issues. And in some ways, to speak about it is to elevate it above some other things. And so we haven't wanted to do that, or issues. And thirdly, to speak about it is to seemingly align with some people who speak so vehemently about it that I feel uncomfortable aligning myself with them. And fourthly, uh, pastorally, I'm aware that we all come at this with different perspectives, and I shall try to show that as we go along. And so there is a real danger that I offend some or all of you uh, this morning. And so I generally go along, most of the time, with that taboo issue and keep quiet on this subject. If that's the case, why, with some right mind thinking, would I then speak about it this morning, you may be asking, well, three things have changed my um, view, at least in the, in the sense that I should speak about it today. The first is the same-sex marriage bill, which is currently uh, going through Parliament. A month ago, we prayed about it, carefully and helpfully, um, I thought. And even prior to that, a number of you emailed me about it. it. It seems to me, and to a number of us, that that bill represents a kind of gr- ground-changing moment, um, something significant is, is happening. Uh, generally that's happening gradually, but this is something you can, you can pinpoint and you can marker and say something significant is happening at that moment. Secondly, um, Steve Chalk wrote an article uh, in this magazine, Christianity. You'll see that it, uh, the, the title of the, that issue of Christianity was called The Last Taboo. I've borrowed that title and changed it to The New Taboo simply because I don't think it is the last taboo. I think each generation has things that fit that category. And also because there is something in the phrase, the last taboo, which for me seems to imply where we're going to end up. Um, Like like we're finally getting over something. Hence for me the title, new taboo. Now some of you will know the name Steve Chalk, and others not. He's a well-known Christian leader in my Christian life he's been prominent and in so many ways a helpful Christian leader who as he explains in this piece has changed his mind on this issue and recently conducted a service of blessing for a gay partnership and the third reason I think that we should speak about this is because of our commitment here we aim for all we do here to be like the half-time team talk helping and equipping people for issues that are relevant, issues that are on people's radar during the week, and this is most certainly one of those issues for us. Let me give an example of that. Some of you know that I play tennis every week on a a Tuesday night, and very often um, over the last couple of years there's been a group of teenage girls who play um, on the court next to us. Now, teenage girls, when they're playing tennis, they play very, very well, but they can also just make it um, a social event, having conversations that us blokes, 40-something blokes on the court next door simply don't have. And um, they can also have those conversations in a way that 40-something blokes on the court next door simply don't exist. And it's very often like that and very often very illuminating. Many of my thoughts come from (laughs) that tennis (coughs) group. On one occasion... Uh, a new girl came to join the group and uh, she was a Christian. She was introduced to the kind of, if there's a female equivalent of alpha male, she was introduced to this girl who was the best at tennis and the loudest and the most vocal. And she was introduced as being a Christian to this group. And and the first thing, the first thing that this uh, dominant girl said was, really, you're a Christian? Do you hate gays then? Her word's not mine. Do you hate gays, then? The first question that she was asked. Now, this girl, her answer was no. No, I don't hate gays. And then the second thing that this girl said, she referred to a a boy that they all knew that was in the same school. Small city, I'll call him Bob, because he most certainly wasn't called Bob. (laughs) She said, well, Bob's a Christian and he hates gays. And this girl said, yeah, I know, and I'm not Bob. Now, for me, that illustrates a number of things. It illustrates that this is one of the issues Christians face, particularly young Christians, a lot of the time. And secondly, um, it's often voiced in an impossible way, in an impossible way to meaningfully dialogue and, uh, with it helpfully and to talk about it. And and, and thirdly, there are two Christians in that story. There is one called Bob who seemingly was seen by both of them as at the hate end of the spectrum here. And there's this other girl who's just wanting to be true to her faith and show some love in the situation. So related to this issue, it raises issues of how does the church today meaningfully relate to the gay community, including the lesbian community, Uh, and bisexual communities. And as I speak about that, I'm aware that in this room we'll be making more than theoretical connections. Some of you are making connections with your friends who are gay. Some are making connections with colleagues. um, Some with family. And some are making personal connections yourself. If so, I know that this could be fearful for you. And please know that you are... You are so welcome, you're more welcome than you know. And I'm really grateful for you being here or for listening online. Let me also say that you don't have to agree with me uh, to be welcome here. I'm by no means an expert um, on this subject and we're simply not that sort of church where the minister says something and everybody has to agree. I'm on a journey of understanding myself, I've done quite a lot of reading and talking and listening to prepare for this, but actually I don't expect some of you to agree with me, I'll come back to that. If you do disagree, I hope that this is the start of a conversation, not the end of it. And you'll see in your news sheet, or you could write it on any scrap of paper, um, welcoming any questions. I'd actually pre- prefer them to be anonymous because I'm hoping there to be enough that I won't have a a chance to deal with all of them in the evening service next week. We're doing it in the evening service because it's very much an issue for for young people too, and a number of them come in the evening. And there are boxes on the front stage and on the information desk at the back to invite your questions. Or you can email in, but you have to be fairly computer savvy to email in anonymously. But you can do that by Wednesday, and um, I'll take questions in any of those directions don't promise to deal with all of them, the ones that are most representative. Clearly we have more material than we have time for, for here and I could spend the whole time on biblical analysis. I can give an overview today but there are other issues we need to talk about including pastoral implications and so on. So where do we really start? Well let's start with Steve Chalk's position. Steve starts from the point of view of inclusion. How does the church today be inclusive? It's a very understandable stance from the point of view of care for the people in his church and concern and pastoral concern. And from there, he goes to the Bible and he says, can we not rethink now? He says, we've done that on other issues. And he cites the example of slavery and women in leadership. So he does this last taboo argument and says... Surely this is just the last taboo. We've done it on issues of slavery and women in leadership. Can we not do this too on issues of homosexuality? Now, I've, I've said that I've the greatest amount of respect for Steve. I've met him a few times. At pivotal points in my life, I've gained so much from him. Um, and he's helped me to picture what youth work could be and what church could be. But I believe in this area he's mistaken. And the journey he's taken is the wrong way around. It's a very definite journey he's taken here. He's taking a pastoral approach of care and then from that pastoral concern, he's going to the Bible and saying, can we now justify this pastoral approach that we would like to take? I've a lot of sympathy for that, but for me it's not the right direction of journey. The reading I began with said, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures through all generations. He is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Nevertheless, Steve's question is a real one. If God is everlasting and his kingdom is all generations, as the psalmist says, and the way I started, then how is it that that the church, over 2,000 years, can change its minds over slavery and over women in leadership And what, if anything, is the difference between those issues and the issue of homosexuality? Christianity, at its best, is surely trying to recognise the culture's pressures on it and then trying to measure that against what the Bible teaches. Well, a book I've found very helpful is this book by William Webb. Slaves, Women and Homosexualities Exploring... The Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis. Not a snappy title, I'll give you that. But I found it to be, I don't think there's going to be a film version of it, but I found it to be a helpful book. It does try to do what actually we try and do most Sundays, which is ask the question, when you look at the Bible, how can you tell if something a teaching and instruction in it it is for a particular time in a particular culture or if it's forever. And clearly the Bible contains both. So there are very specific instructions about beard growth for priests that I ignore. (laughs) There are instructions about wearing garments with more than one thread or material in them that a number of us are ignoring at this moment. And there are instructions about going into all the kingdom, all nations, rather, and making disciples that, w- that we would take to be cross-cultural across every time and culture since Jesus said those words. So how do you make a distinction between those two things? How do you know where something is temporary and specific or how do you know whether it, whether it is permanent? And uh, what he does... William Webb, I think very helpfully, is he takes the issue of slavery, which we would take to be an accepted uh, position, where we would now, I think everybody in this room would say, "The the teaching that seems to support slavery is actually conditional and specific to a particular time and culture. And there's enough in the Bible to point to the wider message of freedom of all human beings, such that we would take that view to be temporary. He takes that and then says, well, let's look at women in leadership and let's look at homosexuality. And what he, what he does is he has, in the course of this very long book, 18 tests for whether something, in terms of where it fits in the Bible, could be considered temporary or all permanent. They don't all apply for all situations, but in short, um, 14 of those 18 he takes to be relevant in some way to the issue of homosexuality. And he finds strongly that the teaching in the Bible is a forever teaching, a cross-cultural teaching in this area, that homosexual practice is wrong. Incidentally, it's not our subject for today, but he finds 15 of the 18 tests relevant in some way to the issue of women in leadership. And he finds equally strongly that the teaching in the Bible here, which seems to limit women's leadership role, is temporary and that the Bible is heading in a different direction there. Now, how can this be? How can I do justice to this long book? Well, I can only give you some hints as to how he approaches it. He looks at the Bible, I'll give you some for examples. He says, is there an Old Testament and a New Testament journey that you can chart here in regard to what's being taught on that subject? Is what's being said here, when you compare it with the culture of the day in the Bible, is it more freeing... Or more restrictive than the culture of the day, because that might point towards a journey. So, for example, on all of the Bible's teaching with regard to women in leadership, it is more freeing than the culture of its day, therefore, it points to a particular direction. With regard to homosexuality, homosexuality was openly practiced in surrounding cultures, therefore, what the Bible teaches is more restrictive to the culture. Of its day, are there any absolutes in what is being taught? Are there any exceptions which would seem to point? If there are anything that seems to be an exception, then that would point towards it being a temporary instruction. Are there any seed thoughts? A seed thought is: is there anywhere in the Bible, in God's word, something that, that when you unpack it fully over over time, it heads you in a particular direction? So um, there is neither. A Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, in the end, heads you in a particular direction. Are there any seed thoughts like that? He finds that there aren't uh, for homosexuality. Are there any exceptions? He finds that there aren't. Are there consequences to what's being taught because that adds to the weight of what's being said and so on? And about ten others, as I say, or more, ten plus. What I appreciate about this approach, though, is that it is thorough. And it's the opposite of what can so easily be be done here. It's the opposite of proof texting to, to make a simple and easy point. It is actually this direction. It is starting with the Bible and saying, what does that say? And then heading secondly to pastoral and saying, how can we be appropriate and helpful and pastoral given what the Bible says here? And that's what I think we have to do. Now there's an obvious danger here that I've talked about Bible passages without actually reading any, so let me pick for today just one. There are probably 12 places in the Bible where homosexuality is mentioned. There are nine in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. Five of the Old Testament references relate to cult prostitution, so I don't think they're particularly or at all relevant for our discussion. And others of course would point beyond those 12 references to passages which make loud and clear God's instruction about heterosexual marriage. But I haven't got time for those today. You can ask questions about those if you want. We're really left with seven references and I could easily spend time on all of them. But for one, I'm gonna to go to Romans one and from verse 18 to Romans two and verse five. If you're gonna pick one passage, it's a, there's a good case for picking this passage. The Evangelical Alliance, who've produced a 145-page book or PDF that you can download on this subject, they say, without doubt, the most important biblical reference to homosexuality um, and the debate um, is this passage, as it provides by far the fullest theological reflection on same-sex relations in, in the Bible canon. Actually, they're referring to Romans 1 alone. I think we need to go on and read Romans 2. I think it's equally vital. Basically, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul, he, and Romans as a whole, Paul is giving his fullest theological work. Um, after the opening bit with a greeting and his prayers and saying that he wants to see them, you go straight to this bit, um, Romans 1. And Romans 1, that first bit that I'll read, is essentially about unbelievers, those who are not yet Christians, that their lives have become darkened to what is true and right, and in that context that they've lost touch with a creator. They then live in wrong ways, he says, with wrong attitudes. And one example, and only one example of that, and not the only example, is homosexual relations. And then in Romans 2, he turns to Christians, and in that context, we need to hear that too. Let's read uh, Romans 1, 18 and following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against, those, against all the, godly, the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to in their sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual imp- impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created images rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received, and, and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to, to do what ought not to be done they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, um, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not, continue to do these, they, they do not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of uh, those who practice them. Then turning to Christians, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at, at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So for me... Homosexual activity is mentioned there in the context of wrong activity, in the context of falling into wrong thinking. It is very specific language, unequivocal language for me, but alongside a whole list of other wrongs. And then it seems to me, and please hear this, that the strongest and harshest warnings in this section are against judgmental Christians. Um, we need to read the Bible as a whole in that regard. Even so, um, for today's issue in this passage, even, even with that one passage, you head in a particular direction, I believe that if we looked at the other 12 references or seven, we would see that the Bible is uniformly negative about homosexual practice and nowhere does the Bible affirm homosexual practice. So, for me, the Bible does not say homosexuality in terms of where one finds sexual attraction is a sin. The Bible does not condemn sexual orientation. And the Bible doesn't seem to answer directly the question of whether orientation is something you're born with or whether it develops through circumstances. I think you could make a case in different directions there and there's different sorts of evidence. But the Bible does call homosexual activity, or practice, a sin. And when I say that, I know that the words aren't always heard that way. Some people hear those words and instead hear, Christians believe if you're gay that you're going to hell for being gay. And that's not true. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but so are lots of the things we're guilty of in that passage. Greed and selfishness, and heterosexual lust, and adultery, and a whole range of other sins. Sin is important, but we all stand before God needing forgiveness. I've also read the arguments for relaxing the teaching on homosexuality. The last taboo-type argument that Steve Chalk presents, you know, we've changed our minds on other views, Uh, there's also an argument based on the fact that Jesus doesn't specifically address this issue. There are those who try to find hints of same-sex relationships elsewhere in the Bible. I'm not convinced by any of them. Uh, One concession I think I would want very much to give is that most, if not all, of the teaching in the Bible about homosexuality is not about committed homosexual relationships. It's simply just not about that. It wasn't particularly an issue. In most of the Bible's written times. But that doesn't change the overall message. Every generation has one or two issues uh, where Christians are called to go against the norm. And I believe this is one of our issues. Um, The ground has shifted beyond recognition in my lifetime. I'm 46, and uh, it's changed beyond any recognition. And the old days weren't particularly the good days, when homosexuality was a a form, a word that could be used as ridicule in the playground. So, on that tennis court, next to mine, with the teenage girls, the the Christian girl and um, the other girls... um, I'm with the Christian girl. I'm, I'm not with Bob. I would want to disown as fast as I could any associations with hate. In the end, one Christian commentator says, you cannot reverse the Bible's teaching, looking at what Steve Chalker said on the issue of homosexuality, and at the same time remain faithful to scripture. You simply have to muster the courage to say that you do not agree with the Bible. I find Matthew Paris very helpful here. Matty Paris is uh, not a Christian. He's, uh, I think, still a writer for The Times. At different times, he's written for The uh, Spectator and for The Telegraph, I think. He's openly gay, and um, he puts it better than I can, he he says. He he wrote this at a time when, um, a few years back, when the issue of gay bishops was particularly coming in the news. But from his perspective, I find what he says amazing. He says, it's time that convinced Christians stopped trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age and understand that if one thing comes clearly through every account that we have of Jesus' teaching is that his followers are not urged to accommodate themselves to their age but to the mind of God. Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable or feel natural. The mind of God contemplating the behaviour of man is not expected to be suffused with a spirit of whatever I feel for homosexualities homosexuals struggling to reconcile their sexuality with their membership of the church and I strive though I feel to to have to be able to feel indignant at conservative evangelicals though passion fails me and I know why inclusive moderate and sensible christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac the church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration or it stands for nothing. Amazing words. I think in this room, though, we come at this with different perspectives, and that's why I don't expect, or particularly even necessarily want, everybody to agree with me. Let me illustrate that in three ways. I think we come at this in different ways in terms of whether we get the logic of what the Bible is saying, not just the teaching. In other words, some of us we, we don't just hear what the Bible is saying in this and perhaps agree with what I've said. Intuitively, it makes sense to us. That may have a lot to do with our upbringing and our age. But that's not the issue. Sometimes we're called to obey God's teaching because we get it in the round, even if we don't get one specific bit of teaching. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So we come at it from different perspectives there. Some of us... <coughs> this is a live issue regularly in natural conversations. For all of us, it's a live issue in terms of the media talking about it. That's a given. But for some of us, this is a live issue in our workplaces, in in an assumed norm that's not what we assume in our families, maybe in a whole range of other contexts. And for some of us, this is a personal issue. This is um, an area of where we face it daily because same-sex attraction is one of our issues. Now, none of that changes what I'm saying, but I would want us all to understand that to the degree that those things affect us, we're asking very different things among different people in this room here. So if (coughs) you already get the logic, if it's not a live issue for you, if this is not a personal issue for you, then we can appear very judgmental if we use harsh words. For somebody else in this room for whom they want to obey God but they don't get the logic at this point, this is daily a live conversation for them and and or this is a personal issue for them. You You see the difference. For those people, the platitudes don't sit comfortably. And many of us for whom this is not our issue therefore feel very uncomfortable talking about it. But I think we must, and I think even if we don't have a right to, others do. In our evening services at the moment, we're uh, taking teaching based on a book by Vaughan Roberts. Vaughan Roberts is Rector of St Ebbs, Oxford, and he's written a whole number of books. We're looking at one called Turning Points in the evening service at the moment. Uh, Another one of his books is a a book called um, Battles Christians Face, in which he writes chapters on image and lust and guilt and doubt and pride, keeping spiritually fresh and so on. It's now in its fifth reprinting of the book, and in the fifth reprinting, he added a preface which makes it clear that the chapter on the battle of facing same-sex attraction is, along with all the other battles, a battle that he personally faces... And he, in an interview described, which you can look up online, describes fully what that is like for him in choosing celibacy. And he says, When tempted to self-pity, I remind myself that celibacy, that's true, not just for those attracted to same-sex, but for all who remain single despite longing to be married, for example. And he talks about those who've come to him for help with this issue. He says, I pray every Monday from a list that is divided into two, those who continue to seek to be faithful to the Bible's teaching, that the only right context for sexual intercourse is in a marriage between a man and a woman, and those who've moved away from that view. Sadly, the second group is growing. It's a great and honest and even heroic piece, I think. Unlike Vaughan Roberts, we may have lost our right to call others on this issue. It seems so completely counter-cultural to to our felt desires to say, are we really saying that that two loving people who have same-sex attraction can't commit to each other for life and still be fully committed followers of Jesus? That seems so counter-cultural. And at that point, a number of us feel uncomfortable. Please know that. But I would want to say that that even if we don't have the right to speak on that issue, Jesus does. Because Jesus exemplifies self-sacrifice and self-denial and at the same time, fully living. And Jesus has the right to speak there. Now, at that point, I've said loads of words and I would invite your questions and your yes what ifs and your practicalities of how that might look or pan out in reality. But let me give you some areas where you might want to ask questions and, and uh, I'll take a few minutes on this and then we'll pray and then we'll close. You might want questions about other Bible passages, I invite me to give an overview, if you do that's, that's fine. Your question might be this about how do you disagree well when it seems now impossible to to dialogue meaningfully with the gay and lesbian and bisexual communities. How do we even begin to try to to do that? The question might be a a Good Samaritan type question. What does practical love look like um, to those for whom we disagree on this issue? I, I for one, am very proud that on on the day that we launched CAP, um, Colin stood here and said that we would serve anybody regardless of a whole range of issues, Including um, sexual orientation and practice I think that's absolutely right and we're called to love our neighbours inc- whoever they are your question might be about national laws um, I personally I can see a good case in a liberal democracy w- in, such as we live in for supporting civil partnerships but for me redefining marriage is beyond the role that I believe a government should do. And I think it would be appropriate for us to oppose that, as, as a number of us did do. Your question might be in this area of, okay, give us other examples where we don't necessarily get the teaching that God is saying in the Bible, but you're still saying he's Lord of all. If we really take this issue on board, you'll see that this isn't an issue just for those who are facing same sex attraction. This is a challenge for all of us to live in a way that is other than our desires and therefore find fully living, following God. One of the reasons we should welcome those who are gay to be here because they have a message for us about living counterculturally discipleship how do you disciple somebody with same sex attraction family you may have questions about what's my approach to somebody in my family who's just said that they're gay or, or openly gay or going to be living a gay lifestyle you could ask questions about that i would begin my answer with unconditional love and welcome but you can answer questions about ask questions about it if you want welcome the challenge to provide a genuine christian community Um, I look back on this, and I fear that in at least a couple of examples, I didn't do well when a friend told me they were gay. And uh, so what what does welcome look like? Um, what, What might our words look like? You can ask questions about that if you like. And the fact that he's Lord of all, and we're called to obey him. The challenge is for each one of us, wherever we sit on this issue... It's much bigger than homosexuality, as I'm sure you can see. We're all made in the image of God. And we're all fallen, and we're all fallen sexual human beings. Jesus profoundly challenges all of us, whatever our sexual orientation. It'd be great if some of you could ask some questions, or it'd be a very quiet evening service next Sunday evening. Come along if you want to. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. If the band could come up, please, and I'll pray. So if you have time to, to post a question at the front of the, We'll put that box... Can you grab it for us? Just somewhere over here, Chris. And uh, there's one on the information desk. Um, like I say, I, I prefer it to be anonymous simply because I don't want to know whose question I didn't answer. <laughs> if there are a whole number, I don't want somebody to say, oh, I asked that question and he didn't ask me. Well, maybe I didn't. But um, and maybe it, it, Sunday becomes wider than, than me answering questions anyway. Um, but, uh, but please do. Please see, though, that that there are challenges for all of us about living a Jesus-type, not-for-me life in the implications of what has been said today. Let's pray. Lord, as as one theme I pick up on on the Christian community challenge here that we would be a welcoming uh, inclusive Christian community and disagreeing well I pray that we would be able to show what that looks like amongst each other and amongst those uh, for whom this would be an astonishing conversation to be even having Lord we recognise that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom And your dominion endures through all generations and we recognise that you are trustworthy in all you promise and that you are faithful in all you do and we cling on to that. Amen. I've asked Chris and the band to sing I Know That My Redeemer Lives because it's honest. Because it it doesn't say I know everything but it clings on to certain things that we do know and, and it says I hang on Every word I steadfastly believe somebody in the midst of not knowing everything choosing to proceed on the basis of trusting their Redeemer, God.